So thank you everyone for coming today to our laptop number seven. My name is Samuel Choi. Uh, I am an SDR at Cluster Market. So I talk with um, scientific facilities to see if we'd be a good fit and we can help them in their lab. Uh, today's lab talk is about navigating collaboration in a post-pandemic lab. So um, the coronavirus pandemic uh, changed the nature of collaboration in all industries. And of course, scientific research is one of them. Uh, Scientists could previously work together in one lab without restrictions. And once COVID hit, um, these restrictions have uh, been, in, been in place. So um, it affected the dynamic and forced the lab to adopt new methods. Um, while the restrictions may now be decreasing, um, now remote technologies will be stay with scientists and uh, will will this stay with scientists and will the future change or will keep this type of um, methodology moving forward? So we, I have three panelists today joining me, uh, Rory McNeil, Michaela Eng, and Alex Goldberg. I will do a quick intro of them. Uh, Rory is the CEO of Research Space, which provides the R Space ELN. And he also hosts uh, the FAIR Data Podcast. Uh, in both roles, he's able to focus on its main interest, which is developing uh, better support for data and sample management. Research Space integrates with many other software that manage data that are out in the market, and it will have an integration with Cluster Market launching in the next few weeks. Michaela is currently a third-year PhD candidate in a basic science lab at McMaster University in Canada. Uh, she started her PhD in January 2020, so uh, she has become well-versed in navigating scientific research in the midst of a pandemic. And finally, Alex is a former postdoc who worked in uh, tuberous sclerosis complex and cancer research. He now works as a medical writer in a medical education for pharmaceutical industry. So thank you very much, uh, all of you, for joining me today. Um, and to get things started, I would just like to ask, um, how do, did you or your customers use to collaborate in science labs? Um, you can mention tools that they use, um, benefits that they had, and um, maybe some drawbacks that they had before. Um, anyone that wants to take the floor? I'll start off. So when I, in a pre-pandemic world, um, collaboration was everything. All the new labs here, they're all set up for to promote collaboration. It's very open concept. All the labs have a lot of common space. Um, but that really changed once the pandemic hit, because like you mentioned, we can we can no longer have a certain like more than a certain number of people in a certain area at a single time. So before we used to have a lot of um, you know, our journal clubs, they were all in person. We'd have 20 people in a room and have snacks. And um, it was really a time, not just for collaborative learning, but also for socialization, which is something that can be kind of difficult um, when you're all working on your own projects. So even terms of like social collaboration and stuff like that, that's really changed since the pandemic started as well. 
Okay, um, just as a follow-up question, uh, you mentioned um, that not only collaboration for the work environment, but also as a social activity. How important is within a lab to have strong social bonds within the members of the lab? Um, that is literally, that's what makes or breaks somebody's experience in a lab, somebody's career in a lab. Um, having a good bond and a good um, like network within your labs and within labs adjacent to you as well is super important, and especially as a grad student. Sometimes stuff sucks and things are hard and having that network to be able to lean on is really helpful for getting you through those trying times. And I feel that like, since we haven't had things in person as much, everyone has become a little bit more individualized. I don't wanna say like recluse, but definitely more individualized because we don't have those opportunities to come together as a lab. Um, and it's, it definitely, it, it affects the, I want to say like vibe in the building as well. Um, Cause before it was just like a very, it was a fun place to be for the most part, but now it's kind of like you go and you do your stuff, you leave. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Um, Alex, any comments? I feel like there's like a generational gap there. It's kind of funny. Cause if you think about like an old school mentality and maybe it's more prevalent in the United States, like both me and Michaela are from Canada. And I think maybe in, we have some big labs, you know, like McGill has big labs and U of T and things like that. But if you go, you know, the Ivy League schools in the U.S. and maybe I think there's a little bit more of an old school mentality where it's not necessarily as close together. There's a lot more competition to succeed. It's not as tightly knit. And I feel like there's potentially because of social media, because of just how how relaxed the younger generation is, like how relaxed we are nowadays, that it used to be a lot more tightly knit than potentially like before. And now it's almost like if there was a generation that could overcome COVID, it's us based on social media and how tightly knit we are, you know? Like there's there's definitely some sort of, there's like a, not a resolution, but almost just like a, a natural affinity to communicating with other people and to making it a fun place nowadays in the lab which is a little bit taken away, but I still think, I mean, I don't, I haven't, I haven't had the chance to actually work in a lab post pandemic, but I do have a lot of pre pandemic experience. And I can imagine that based on all of the social networks that we have now and how easy it is to communicate that there's never been a time where it's easier to keep that up until which it seems like that the restrictions are all coming to an end, at least in many parts of the US and some parts of Canada. Mm -hmm. Do you think that um, having the pandemic made it, it created a growth within the communication? Like, uh, is it more necessary to be more uh, communicative with your peers uh, because of COVID and because of all these restrictions, physical restrictions? I can say based on, I mean, the work that I do now is purely at home. It's all, it's all remote work that I do. And I can say that it it's forced people to, and not just for labs, but just overall, like in any, any company that you work for, any institution, it's forced people to relearn how to manage to a certain extent. And it's forced people to become a lot more involved. Like if there's something that, if there's an issue that's brought up, it gets brought up immediately. Whereas if you, you know, if you, if you meet somebody in the lab or if you meet somebody 
at work and you think, okay, you know, like there's an issue, I'm going to talk to the lab meeting or I'm going to talk to my supervisor when I see them, that kind of thing. Those issues are brought up immediately on the spot now by email, by text message on Teams, any of those, any of those platforms, because you need to, if you don't, then things always go by the wayside. You put it to the side and you, you never end up meeting the person, right? Like there's no, there's no formal meeting with that person. So things are, so I think the speed of which management occurs is much faster and much more efficient now because they need to be. And if they don't, then they can't really manage people well. Like you can't, you can't really communicate with people well. You can't, you can't assess your logistics. You can't figure out what needs to be done if you don't do it faster. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so you're saying that it changed a mentality in us that we want to get things on faster and right at that moment when it, you know, when you realize something. Yeah. Um, so that'd be a, a pro, I would say, right, from from the pandemic and how our mentality has changed in that matter. Yeah. Um, Rory, any insights about um, how things used to be uh, before the pandemic? For you? Yeah, well, just no, no, maybe not an insight, but just a reflection on what uh, what Alex was saying about the different kinds of labs. There's obviously a spectrum between large labs and small labs, and also between um, my observation is some labs are are really a collection of individuals, and other actu- others actually work as a group. And so, probably in the smaller labs, uh, there's more of a tendency to um, to be able to work as a group, whereas in some of the like the super labs you mentioned down in um, Places like Harvard or MIT, if you've got if you've got a, a rock star PI and and um, thirty or forty or fifty people in the lab, uh, then the then the relationship tends to be more each person to the PI. So there's not a lot of cross communication. Uh, so I suspect in in those kind of labs, in that sense, the, the pandemic probably hit hit less hard because there was less communication cross commun- you know kind of para- um, horizontal communication. Uh, to, to deal with, where, but in Michaela's example, where there was, it was more fun and there was a lot more going on and it was more social, then that would be um, that would hit hit harder. Uh, that makes sense to me. Yeah, I would actually disagree with that. I would actually think, just based from a management perspective, that a smaller lab would have a easier time keeping up the communication once the pandemic hit. They probably even have a hard, had an easier time with getting people in the lab and you know working out schedules. Whereas a larger lab, just working out the schedules for who's going to do what work, and this all comes down to the PI, right? Like all of those decisions come down to the PI. If somebody gets sick, guess whose responsibility that is? It kind of comes down to the PI who's managing all of those people. So, and especially if they have you know, oops, like ten people came in when they weren't supposed to, and now all of them are sick then that management decision is, it all rests on that PI and there's so many people in that lab. I feel like it actually makes it even harder. Like it was hard enough to communicate. I think the pandemic would have actually made that even harder for him to manage that kind of role because it's another responsibility on top of everything else he's already working with. Nonstop grant writing and, you know, working like uh, like 80 hour day, 80 hour weeks, you know? So I don't know. I think smaller knit labs, they would actually, they, they wouldn't necessarily benefit. I think the, with the COVID, COVID, COVID pandemic, it's not necessarily a matter of benefiting. It's a matter of who loses less, who loses less ability to communicate. And I think the smaller labs probably lost less ability. They probably lost less because they, it's just easier to manage like five people versus 50. Yeah, I would totally yeah, agree. Like you both have good points that I think from a 
work perspective, it was easier for our lab because we are quite a small lab. So having people decide, like I only have to text three people to decide who's going to come in on what days and, um, you know, at what times versus I guess a larger lab, but definitely I feel that because we are a smaller lab, we are a lot more tight knit. That's also the nature of our, the, the studies that we do um, in our lab. So they involve many, many people to make a single study work. Um, so in that term, it made it more difficult because those studies can occur because for instance, our studies take place over 72 hours and we have to do something every four hours or 72 hours straight. So that involves us sleeping over at the lab. You can't really put that many people together and especially try to sleep in the lab when you have severe restrictions. So it made our work a little bit more difficult in terms of some of the studies that we were trying to do. But I also think we were a little bit harder hit in the um, social aspect because we are very tight knit because there are so few of us. Like in my lab, we're particularly small. We have two grads, three grad students and a medical fellow. So there's only four of us in our PI. We have a lot of labs that we're also close with around us. It's like a, a conglomerate of smaller labs um, that make one big unit. Um, and we were all very close. Um, like I said, doing things like journal club, we did uh, like happy hours on Thursdays in the lab. And now those things don't exist. And it definitely had an impact like kind of on the morale around because also because we work so close together and we are so collaborative that we really help lift each other up and help each other complete each other's work, um, which isn't as possible now. Mm -hmm. so, so smaller labs were used to um, the social aspect being more interconnected and all of that now is lost, right? So maybe you were hit harder on that side, but it was easier to organize uh, during the pandemic, whereas bigger labs, they might have not had that uh, close-knit relationship, but um, in order to organize such a large number of users, it would have been more complicated, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, mentioning the, the organization around the lab and when someone would come in to run their experiments, um, what technologies have you been uh, using or what new methods did you have to adopt since the start of the pandemic? We have so many group chats. We have group chats for every different project. We have group chats for, you know, different groups of students, different labs. Um, we utilize WhatsApp the most here. Um, and that I would say would be the, the most direct method of communication. We have like group chats with RPIs, with a grad, like me, there's another uh, PhD student in RPI. We have like direct communication with each other, which I actually think is a bit more of a benefit. Like Alex was kind of mentioning, like we go straight to our PI when we need something because she's just a text away versus before I was like, oh, well, is she in today? Is she coming in today? Um, so it's definitely a lot more direct. Um, and sometimes that can be a good thing and a bad thing when people are messaging, messaging you at four o'clock in the morning. It's not a great thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So um, you feel, do you feel like some of these barriers that were in place before are gone now because of um, this, uh, you're using WhatsApp right now. Um, so this helps communication and lower these barriers with your PI, for example. Yeah, I definitely think that the WhatsApp is, and a lot of people that are using those electronic lab notebooks where their PIs have access to them, so that's also a good thing to bad thing because your PI can see how much or how little you're doing, but um, it's different than having to take your paper notebook into their office and wait for them to come in and show them, 
you know, your little pieces of paper with your results on them or your little pictures of your little blots. Like those um, electronic notebooks have really helped um, improve that communication as well. So Sam, then maybe um, I can just uh, jump in there. So in terms of what's uh, what's changed, and actually it's too bad Alex is, uh, I guess he's still here, he's just muted, but so it's interesting. So, I mean, it seems to me that, that um, some things in the lab definitely became more difficult after uh, after the pandemic, and, and and obviously scheduling equipment is a is probably the, the classic example of that because, as uh, Michaela was saying, you have limited number of people coming in when they can come in, so therefore equipment scheduling becomes becomes uh, uh, a lot more fraught and less relaxed than it was before, and uh, it was interesting when when as as you mentioned we're about to release an integration between the RSpace ELN and Cluster Market. And when we started investigating, it just so happens that the first lab that I reached out to was, uh, was quite a large lab. They have, I think, about 40 people. Uh, and when I, I said, you know, would, would, an, uh, uh, would an integration with an equipment scheduling app be useful? I got, and, and this is a busy PI. <laughs> I got an email back like five seconds later saying, yes, please, <laughs> we needed it yesterday. Um, and, and, and clearly that was stimulated by some of the restrictions that, that they were facing because of the, um, uh, because of the pandemic. So, so I think that, um, that, that, that in terms that th those are kind of, um, you know, very lab uh, work related tools, as opposed to something, a communication tool, like, uh, like WhatsApp. I think another, Another aspect of that um, is the is the integration between tools. If you it's it, it's great to move from doing things on paper to doing things electronically, whether that's an ELN or a uh, or an equipment scheduling tool. But if all the tools don't work together, that's not so convenient either. So if you can if you can actually get them working, um, if they're integrated and working as a group, uh, then that actually is in even another level of, of of kind of a communication platform in effect. And also and also to to Alex's point. A management or organizational platform. So, I think all those things have have been dramatically accelerated by the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe there was before there was some reluctance from the PIs or lab managers to adopt new technology. Right? They they like their paper notebooks. They like having their their calendars in paper printed out and stuck on the instrument. But now things changed, so um, they quickly had to adapt. Right. Um, so, so following up on this, uh, Rory, you might have some insights with uh, the clients you work with. Um, is there a specific, was there a specific need or, or a growth in need or requests uh, from, your, from your clients of different software um, that you know of since the pandemic? Yes. I mean, well, first of all, we've just noticed a huge increase in our business generally. So clearly people are going electronic. So that, that's kind of, that's, that's the case. But also, and coming back to my point about the benefit of integrations, uh, what people wanting things to work together. So I mentioned there actually I could give you quite a few examples, but a cluster market is one. But another one, uh, which we've done recently, is a is it's a, uh, a tool called Pyrat. It's an anim animal colony management system, and again, um, it's used to it's used to to manage colonies of animals, and typically those things are standalone tools. But now they want to be able to work with them as they work with uh, as their general experimental data 
in an electronic lab notebook. And if you think about it, it's also a benefit to, to also be able to aggregate data from the equipment that was used. That was, um, sample management is another, another, another tool. So people are, I think, beginning to look for um, integrated solutions to, 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 to kind of broader and more ambitious workflows as the point is, you know, just try this, try this, try this, try this, and, and then put them together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would definitely say like integrating everything into one because I'd say right now we don't have a very good integration platform. We actually do still have some machines that are on a paper calendar that you book out. Um, but we also have like apps for everything. Our phone is just loaded with different apps for different softwares, like our colony management software, which is great because then I like it's great to have on my phone because then I get notifications when my mice need to be weaned or if the vet has flagged one of my cages. But then I have that software. I have my WhatsApp. I have my electronic notebook. I have this. And having them all in different places is can be a little overwhelming sometimes. I open up the wrong apps. And especially when I'm trying to show somebody something, that's always the moment where you can never pull up the thing that you need. So um, yeah, I can definitely see the need for like integration of like different platforms. Sorry. Oh, go ahead, Rory, sorry, uh, go ahead. I was just gonna say picking up on another point which is kind of implicit in some of the things that Michaela has been saying about, you know, on, on, on my phone, on my phone. I think something else that's been, uh, that's been accelerated by, by the pandemic, it was happening anyway, but probably the pandemic did accelerate it, was the need for things to be accessible on, on mobile devices as well. And not that people don't use their desktops or their laptops, of course they do, but oftentimes they're they're moving around, whether it's moving around in the lab or moving around outside the lab, or maybe they're sleeping somewhere in the lab and they need to get their text at uh, three in the morning. But the ability to quickly access information through the mobile device, I think that's another trend which has been accelerated by uh, by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And and piggyback writing on, on that idea and Michaela's idea, I think there is uh, maybe some technical depth, some, some need to improve because the market adopted all of these technologies so quick, right? It, within, a, within a couple of months, they, everyone was looking for a digital way to solve their problems that they could do it in a, in a manual fashion. So um, um, I, I feel like sometimes uh, the companies or the technology is not up to date, up to par of what the client wants because there wasn't that big um, demand before, right? Um, could you share some light into this, Rory? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, um, and there wasn't demand, I guess. Well, let's face it, everyone's set in their ways. And uh, when, when things have been done in a certain way, and of course there are generational issues as well, but even outside of gener generational issues, it doesn't take people very long to get set in whatever way it is that they're set. Uh, and, uh, and so it's something like this, forced people, as you said, overnight to kind of rethink everything in a, well, in the beginning, in a, in a, in a, if you think back, it was a, a crisis, not a crisis mentality, it was a crisis because you couldn't even go into the lab for a while or, and then you were able to in, in a restricted way. And it was, but uh, so yes, I think that's right. And then, and then there's a bit of time to figure out, well, what, what are potential solutions? And then I think you also see a, a huge amount of innovation among both among the researchers who are, are using tools and also among tools providers because they see, well, there's a need, but there's also an opportunity here to do the research more effectively or to make your tool more widely adopted by making it what people want in this new context. So, so it's been, I think it's been quite an exciting 
you know, there's, it's, it's been difficult, but I, there's also been it's an exciting period. And I, I think even now, but certainly in two to three years, we'll, we'll come out the other side thinking, my God, how, how, did pe- how did people even manage five years ago? They were so kind of primitive in what they did. I don't know, Michaela, what, what do you think? Do you think that's right? Or? I absolutely think that's right. Because even there's some things that I was like, why did, why was, why weren't we doing this sooner? Why, like, even just for some of our, um, like, equipment booking, we just use uh, Google Calendar, I think, for some of it. And I'm like, why, why weren't we doing this sooner? Because previously, when we're on the little paper calendars, like, I'd have to go to the lab to go book it out. And then if I didn't make it, or if I had something else come up, then I'd have to go to the lab and scratch my name off the paper. So why was that ever a thing? Why weren't we using these different integration platforms earlier where we could integrate, first of all, that we weren't having a different Google calendar for every different piece of equipment that we had and a different login account, but also like, it was, it's just so much more simple now that I wonder why we ever, why we didn't move there sooner. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, um, just a reflection. Um, what, uh, what are some of the the benefits or drawbacks of the new way of working post-pandemic? What do you think, Michaela, that you are every day in the lab? Um, so definitely one of the biggest, um, I'd say, pros to the pandemic is online conferences. Now I get to mm-hmm. go to so many conferences, have attend so many talks that I would never be able to attend before because we didn't have the funds to travel to the UK or travel to other places in Europe. So those types of things have been huge in personal growth as well as networking. Um, That's definitely been amazing. Definitely some of the drawbacks are that lack of community that I think that we've kind of adopted. And definitely there's been some setbacks for each individual because for instance, I wasn't allowed to go into the lab for nine months. The first nine months of my PhD, I sat at home and read papers so now we're trying to like make up for that time and trying to find those efficiencies those softwares that will help us you know instead of copying and pasting our stuff into excel what kind of programs can we use to kind of get it all in one place for better data management and better data analysis so those are definitely trying to find those efficiencies or have those efficiencies have definitely been amazing pro in the past year since we've been back to being a little bit more freely into lab and doing experiments for sure yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing. I think that the the big, or certainly one of the biggest pluses is uh, the ability to communicate with people who aren't in the, in your location. And I like uh, Michaela. I'm, I, I kind of have uh, OD'd on online conferences, and <laughs> there's been a couple of afternoons where I'm trying to attend three at once. And that, and I at the end of the day, I said, "Why am I doing this to myself?" But be, because you you know, it's like you uh, you know your your um, uh, what's it your uh, your eyes are bigger than your stomach. You know, you just think, oh, I can do that, I can do this. But, but you know, it, it, fantastic opportunities to network, to understand, to meet with people online, anywhere, without any, without any constraint except, except time zones. And that's been a, a huge, a huge plus, I think. Um, and with, you know, with collaborators, with partners, with, with, with customers, you name it. Uh, and also, I think. I, I actually, I'm interested, Michael. Let me ask you because my my feeling is this is ju- just occurred to me as we were discussing it, but that some of the online conferences have actually become more open and 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 kind of productive and creative be- because of this uh, this infusion of new blood, so to speak. And 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 uh, I think there may be 
when I think in the past, some of the some of the uh, uh, in-person conferences were quite top-down. They're very structured. You know, this is how it is. People give talks. People come to listen. There's a great interaction outside the outside the formal presentations, and people meet and network and have fun. That's all good. But in terms of actual substantive um, interaction, say with the presenters, it tended to be quite unidirectional. Whereas my impression is now that at least the ones I attend, it's often more there's more give and take, and there's more kind of uh, ability to contribute if you're not necessarily the presenter, which, which to me, that's actually a really positive uh, trend as well. Yeah, I definitely agree that um, a lot of them do like these little breakout groups as well. So then you actually have time to go and talk to the presenter, the, the keynote speaker that sometimes you wouldn't before. And also it, it's more comfortable for a lot of people and they get more out of it because it's a lot harder to approach somebody in person, I think, especially mm -hmm. when you're trying to talk like there's this amazing keynote speaker and you know you really admire the work that they do but they're this really keynote speaker and you don't really want to like walk up to them and be like hi I'm a PhD student but so being able to have that you know a little bit more arm's length approach but still being able to talk to them directly has definitely been making the conferences more worthwhile to attend and also I think that there has been more diverse, the types of people that attend the conferences. So for instance, I've been attending some innate or humoral immunity talks when I do innate immunity. So I get to learn and benefit from what they're doing, which otherwise my PI would have normally not spent the money for me to go to a conference on something that's not directly my field. So I get to learn some of the things and some of the approaches that they're doing in their field to be able to apply to my own work. It's the same with where all, a lot of people are moving to multi-omics approaches. So being able to go to, let's say, a proteomics conference when, again, my PI normally wouldn't send me to that because it's not my direct field, but I go there, I learn a bunch of stuff, a bunch of new techniques that I can then apply to my own. It's going to make my research way more rich, way more impactful than I probably would have never had that opportunity prior to these online conferences. Yeah. Just, I was thinking about when you mentioned what, what triggered this question really was your point about how do you learn, how you can learn new things. So Another new technology, which, which isn't really related to the pandemic, but it's certainly become even more prominent in the last couple of years is, is video and YouTube. And to what extent do you try to learn things related to your research techniques, whatever, through, through YouTube? Or is that not something you use for that? Do you use it for other things? Normally, when I'm trying to learn a new concept, I will go to YouTube first and try to find like a very simplified version. Right. So then... Because if you try to go straight to the literature, sometimes it can be very overwhelming. It's very complex. There's a lot of jargon. So I actually use YouTube a lot to try and learn new, learn new techniques before I'm trying to like research them or even learn new techniques. For instance, like when I'm doing a new mouse technique, being able to see it visually versus just reading it off a protocol on a piece of paper makes it so much quicker to adapt that new protocol or adapt that new technique. As well as, again, going back to the conferences, a lot of them, they're now recorded and put on YouTube. So instead of trying to watch three at once, I'll watch two at once and then I'll go watch the third one later when it's posted on YouTube. So definitely YouTube has been an amazing resource for, for me and my learning, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, just, just as a follow-up question, I guess, did you, ex did you ever expect, you know, tapping into YouTube for academic purposes? Probably not to the extent that I'm currently using it for. I also never thought that they'd be some of like the very niche techniques or niche areas of research that 
I'd be able to find so much information on them, you know, different molecular pathways. There's all these great videos with these great animations that as someone who's a visual learner, I can learn things so much quicker, retain so much more through YouTube, where previously I would have thought that YouTube's just for wasting a lot of time watching videos of nonsense. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so a follow-up of, of this, what other unexpected things happened while you were, you know, adapting to this new way of working for both Rory and Michaela, whoever wants to take it first? Yeah, okay, let me let me jump in. Uh, definitely the online conference we've, we've discussed and the ability to just, I uh, just, before I come on to that, or just, you know, it's interesting. I've now noticed that some of the conferences are beginning to be, be in person again, or not kind of starting in summer and then maybe looking towards the, the autumn. And one clear thing is they're more expensive than, uh, than the online conferences. And I'm trying to think about organizing a panel for a couple of conferences. And I'm thinking, well, gee, I don't know if, if the people are going to be able to find funding to, and the time to go to this panel. Whereas before, I wouldn't have even thought about that. They would have just said, of course, you know, it's $50 or yeah, no problem. But if it's $1,000 or $2,000 and plus the hotel, then all of a sudden they need to get approval and it's a lot more difficult. So, so, so I think we're going to also have to transition back and get used to some of the old ways of doing things. But anyway, yeah, in terms of unexpected things, I, I, I mean, I think how you, how you work with the people you're working with is something you, you need to be a bit more self-conscious about. So like in, we have a great group, a fantastic team that I've, that I've been working with. Well, well, there's some new people, but some are been, been there for a while, but, and I, I appreciated them a lot before, but I think I appreciate them more now. And I think ironically, I'm actually more sensitive to their, each individual's, their, their life outside work kind of thing. Uh, not that, again, I don't think I was particularly insensitive before, but I've certainly become more, both more appreciative and more aware of kind of the, the human dynamic, possibly because there's less, you know, there's less of the direct human dynamic than there was before. And if you don't, if you don't become a bit more sensitive and you don't see people that often, you can actually lose touch with more easily with their situation. And that's not a good thing if you're trying to, to work together. So perhaps that's one unexpected thing, which again, I think in most, in my case, and I assume many others has been turned in from a problem into a, hopefully a, a positive thing. Yeah. Piggybacking on that, being on the flip side of it. So I definitely find that my PI or any of like the PIs or people above me, they, they seem a lot more empathetic, especially when you're, you're not quite hitting deadlines that you would normally hit because, you know, there's a lot of things going on in the world that can be very distracting and, um, or, you know, your family member caught COVID and you're trying to go to the grocery store to make sure that they have all the things that they need and that's taking away time from the, the, the work that you could be doing. Um, and the fact that now that a lot of it's work from home, there's that little bit of a lack of separation between work and home that I find that a lot of uppers are being like, you know, make sure that you take the weekend off, you know, make sure you take some time for yourself before they'd be like, why, why aren't you working on the weekends? Why aren't you working Saturday at 10 PM? Like, I definitely find that there is a lot more, I think, empathy and compassion coming from some of the uppers that have come out of this situation. Um, glad to have you back, Alex. Um, any any comments on on this? What uh, what what unexpected things have happened? Well, while we were adapting to to the new ways. Well, for, at least at least with regards to the lab, it's kind of hard to like. I'm coming from a perspective since I haven't I I never got a chance to actually formally work in a lab during the pandemic, so I'm kind of coming from a perspective from all all of my experiences are pre-pandemic. 
but I definitely, uh, I definitely echo what Michaela said in terms of the pressures that you felt pre-pandemic to, uh, to work on weekends, to really, you know, everything was very, uh, usually very strict with regards to deadlines, with regards to getting enough work done. There was a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of stress about publishing, a lot of stress about where the next grant would come from. I can only, it, it's actually kind of funny because you would think with the COVID, COVID pandemic that funds might even be harder to come by now because of all of the money that the government's put into helping people survive through the pandemic, everything that's going around, going on with the world right now, including the war in Ukraine, uh, you know, financial institutions are, uh, are, are straining to a certain extent as well as governments. Um, you would think that it's even harder to publish and harder to get funding. I don't, I don't necessarily know this is kind of like speculation on my part, just based on the events of what's transpiring across the globe. But at the same time, people seem to be, at least from what I've heard, people, even, even at my own work, everybody's very sympathetic and empathetic towards any sort of situation. There's, there's all, it's almost like a release of pressure. It's almost like when you have nothing, you have everything that kind of thing, you know, when you, when you finally are homeless, you feel like you're free. So it's almost kind of that situation that everybody's been put in that everybody's in the same boat, everybody's struggling. So the stress is almost gone because you don't, you're not, you're not constantly putting yourself up against that competition throughout the pandemic. You can kind of almost relax a little bit, even though you know that results are going to be down, the amount that the opportunities for funding are going to be down, but you kind of persevere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a good idea that um, you mentioned that having less maybe sometimes is liberating and, and not having that pressure. I just want to change gears a little bit and talk about communication. So now that we've improved communication after the pandemic via using different technologies such as WhatsApp or other software that helped us communicate with our colleagues, what can we do now moving forward to make sure that that good communication remains moving forward with our colleagues and peers. I would start by saying like definitely continuing those integrations of different softwares because there sometimes there are communications within software such as our colony management where I connect with the vets and the vet tech and they're able to send me direct messages that, you know, again, like one of my cages were flagged. Um, but then I have like a separate app for that. And then I have a separate app for my PS. So definitely having that integration of like, you open up one thing and you see all your messages in one place. It's basically like having an email, but then again, you have your emails in another app as well. So I definitely think having them all being integrated into one place, one cohesive place um, will definitely help improve communications. There'll be a lot less, oh, sorry, I didn't see that notification on that app because I had this app open or, you know, I didn't check my emails because I didn't get every, everything through WhatsApp. So definitely having everything in one place would definitely continue to improve that communication amongst different places, like the animal facility versus the labs itself versus when I'm at home. I think to that point, I think RFID, the implementation of RFID would actually be great to kind of help everything connect, especially for collaborations where if you're labeling samples either by hand or by barcodes, it's not necessarily like barcodes have their own standardization, that's fine, but everybody kind of uses their own system, right? Everybody uses their own kind of different barcode to label samples and it kind of becomes a mess. I think RFID in terms of just standardizing things throughout different labs and throughout different institutions, it, it helps things connect one thing to the other, you know? 
it helps it helps labs connect all of their results together and makes analysis a lot more e a lot easier in the long run. Mm -hmm. um, Rory, any any insights about um, standardizations of protocols for for better communication? Uh, because, like Alex said, every you know every vendor, every software maker tries to push their own um, platform and their own uh, way to do things. Could there be a standardization sometime uh, in the future, in the near future, to you know make things easier for everyone, even ELN software, right? Yeah. Well, it's clearly a big challenge. So um, certainly, our 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 major focus is on is on integrations, and I think you you think of integrations, or I think of it kind of at two levels. There's the there's the data level, so you can pass information about equipment scheduling to the ELN and, and vice versa, or the animal colony management system. So there's that kind of um, top level of of communication, um, and it is possible to to automate some of that, but there's a, maybe just to throw in another idea, uh, there's something else which is just beginning to happen, but I, I think it, it will become important, uh, which is permanent identifiers. So permanent identifiers are, are a kind of uh, metadata, a, meta, a metadata structure, if you will. And it's, it's again, it's really very early days, but uh, to let uh, permanent identifiers to be associated with particular data sets, again, to pass easily between between tools that are used in the research cycle, and then to automate that process, which then facilitates search. Again, this isn't exactly communication, but it's, um, it, it, is, it is communication of a kind, search for, for information about, uh, about experiments, about, about samples, about other things. So I think that in the next five years, the, the, PI, the permanent identifiers are going to become an important uh, tool, which will largely operate behind the scenes, uh, which are going to facilitate uh, discovery, um, which is which, which in itself will also be a boon to uh, um, to communication. I think. Do you have any experience in terms of labs using those permanent identifiers, or what kind of challenges? Uh, what kind of challenges? Well, yeah, I think it, they, they, it's not it's not a matter of labs using them. They need to be built into the tool so that it just happens automatically. So if if people have to figure out how to use them, it, it's not it's not that 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 kind of defeats the purpose. Um, so, so an example that you're probably familiar with is ORCID IDs. I assume you're familiar with ORCID IDs. So your ORCID ID follows you around. And, and if, you, if you post a data set or a publication, your ORCID ID is automatically associated with it. So that's, that's, a, that's an example of a, um, of a particular kind of, um, of ID. And then there's, there's also um, data site IDs, which are associated with data sets so that when data sets data sets which increasingly become uh, research objects themselves so that uh, the, the idea is associated with the data set. It's, it's, there's a whole system so that again, it's then possible to discover things um, more easily. So again, these, uh, these things won't become really useful uh, or I think ORCID ideas are now very useful but they've only become useful after there's been a lot of development of the concept and, and the implementation over what five to seven years. I think, I think the same will be true of, of other types of permanent identifiers. I think one of the challenges is to get everyone on board on the same level, right? Every software vendor, every lab has to say, okay, we like these standards, these work for us. Um, because what might work for me might not work for Michaela or for Alex or for you, Rory. So I think that's, that's the biggest challenge, right? Um, 
So um, it, just another question for the people that might be listening in. Um, what advice would you personally give to those that are maybe struggling a little bit um, with uh, communication when they're working remotely or trying to learn or adapt to a new process that um, has been handed on from top down? Play a game, play an online game. I, I, know okay. it, I know it sounds silly, but I, I've had experience, Michaela can vouch for me on this one, that we've had experience where even just between groups of friends who are busy, who, you know, it's, it's difficult to really communicate all the time. Everybody has their own schedules. But I think something that is interactive, that's engaging, that you can get every, if you, if you can't get everybody on board to play a simple game online, and there are a whole bunch of games that you can play online, if you can't organize the, like your lab, to come do that, then how are you going to organize lab schedules? You know, like if you don't start at the base with something simple that people want to do, that people would generally enjoy just playing in their in their basement, then how can you possibly get them to be motivated enough to schedule themselves online to do things for the lab instead of just kind of, you know, especially especially with laboratory personnel used to working along their own for much of the day, you know? So if you can't get them to communicate based on that, then how, how are you going to get them to communicate based on everything else? You know, you kind of have to almost like, like give them a little bit of a carrot, do something fun, do something that's not just that's that kind of builds, builds character online with everybody that builds like rapports online. That way, when things bubble up in work, it's much easier to communicate. There's already that, that line of communication that you guys start off fresh, that you guys are starting off with something fun on a personal level, that when something professional happens, well, you can still deal with it on a personal level and manage personalities from afar. Any other tips, Michaela, Rory, from your experience? From my experience, just ask questions. Ask everything, especially because when you have those opportunities, like for those, you know, times that we do have like our online zoom meetings in the lab and you have that time with your with your pi or your other peers that are a little bit more immediate even more immediate than a text message like ask those questions because now it's not as easy as walking over to somebody's cubicle and asking a question they're not there because restrictions so although yes we have even like a more more direct line of communication with um like your whatsapp or your um other systems that you're using, there's nothing better than asking the questions when you do have those, you know, small face-to-face moments and being able to, like Alex said, like build that rapport. It's great to build rapports over text messages, but you can also say a lot of things over text messages that you wouldn't say to somebody's face. And that's also something that you really have to remember when you're working on those communications or you're communicating with other people and uppers that you still have to maintain that level of professionalism. While yes, you can get to them, know them as a person and build those things as well, but um, it's still important to maintain those, those levels of hierarchy kind of, um, because nothing's worse than, you know, trying to overstep somebody and not causing a huge kerfuffle or, you know, causing a breakdown within the lab because times are still, as much as we'd like to say we're post-pandemic, at least here in Canada, like we still do have a, a lot of restrictions within our research facility um, that might be more strict than like what's in the general public. So um, definitely just, you know, taking those those times 
that you do get a little bit of face-to-face time and kind of valuing it a little bit more because it's a little bit more rare. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I guess we're all using more asynchronous tools for communication, right? Uh, WhatsApp, Slack, Teams, those are, you don't have to reply right at that time. You can wait a couple minutes, an hour if you're doing something else, right? So, so yeah, you're right. Maybe uh, cherishing and, and, and valuing more face-to-face time is, is important for, for having that side of communication as well. Um, Rory, any any ideas for for tips? Yeah, I think what Alex and uh, Michaela said makes sense, and uh, kind of picking up on one of the earlier points about which I try to do a bit more is to try to um, you know prepare in advance for important questions like YouTube. You know, in other words, educate yourself. You can often find out a lot of stuff, uh, and therefore you can ask if it's a question, you can ask a more informed question as opposed to my uh, instinct, which is just to blurt out questions and and uh, you know, bother people about stuff, which is not really a good practice. So I think I've become a bit more maybe disciplined about trying to, to learn for myself and, th- and, then, and then you end up having more productive. Uh, sometimes you can, you can, if you can avoid, if it's, a, if it's a, a kind of a meaningless or non-essential communication, you don't do it at all, which, which is good. Or if it's an important one, you end up having a more productive conversation. So sometimes that can be helpful as well, since there's so much information out there now uh, on YouTube and elsewhere. I must say that having virtual meetings has really helped. Like you can you can more easily access if you want to research something in the middle of a talk or in the middle of a discussion. You can just be like, hold on, hold on, I'm gonna go look it up. You know, I've yeah. come across quite a few client meetings where you're just kind of like, you know, I'm not sure. Hold on, give me just a second. Whereas in an actual meeting, like there's no way when you're you know you go to your your PI's office or you're in the middle of a presentation, you can't do that kind of thing. It's helped quite a bit. Well, I would just like to kind of wrap things up. Um, if anyone of our panelists has any closing comments they'd like to share, um, you're welcome to. If not, um, I'll just take lead. And um, I guess uh, just as a quick summary, um, the pandemic has affected us all uh, in different ways, but um, I think we are good and bad things out of this. Uh, maybe the social aspect is one of the, the cons of having this pandemic hit us, um, but then, We've adopted uh, quickly uh, different types of software for communication and collaboration uh, within our places of work, uh, scientific laboratories specifically. And I believe that there is still much to do such as integrating with different softwares that we use so we don't have 10 different apps uh, for every single thing that we are uh, working on. And as well as um, kind of, wanting to have more uh, social activities and more face-to-face uh, communication with our peers. Um, and uh, maybe we should think of um, how to improve upon this and how to try to minimize the, the cons that it has brought uh, into, the, into the world. Um, so I'd like to thank everyone that has joined into the call. And uh, this will be available on on YouTube once uh, we process the video and we'll put it up. So uh, as we mentioned, uh, you can use it as a resource if you'd like to. And I would just like to um, thank very much uh, our panelists, Alex, Michaela, and Rory for joining me. And uh, that'd be it from our side. Thank you.